We made it. Week six of You Ask For It. So uh, congratulations to all of the seniors we wrestled with. Do we like end this today and like recognize seniors and do like the go out and change the world sermon that everybody does on Sunday or do we stick with questions? And we decided, you can decide after the sermon if it was a good decision or not. We decided to stick with the You Ask For It series. I hope this series has been helpful to you and challenging to you as it's been for me. And I want to say thankful, thank you to each one of you for your thoughtful questions that have informed this series, whether it was the ones that were asked ahead of time and we've answered in the sermons or the ones that you have scanned the QR code and submitted for afterwards. It has been uh, fun to walk through this process. And so just a reminder, as I'm speaking today, if I say something that stirs a question or you're like, hey, that didn't make sense or can we dive deeper into that? Scan that QR code, submit your question. We'll have the panel up here one last time this week to answer those questions. So here's our final question of this series. And it's, it's great for seniors. You guys are just going to love this, right? So why does God in the Old Testament seem so different from God in the New Testament? Now, I made an assumption with this and retitled this question, why is God so angry, right? So I'm just kind of assuming that when we ask that question, we're asking, you know, Jesus seems like love and mercy and grace only in the New Testament, and God the Father seems like wrath and justice and judgment and anger in the Old Testament. And there's verses in there that make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, right? I mean, often we as parents, when our kids are little, we're like, you can't watch this TV show with this rating. You can't play this video game with this rating. You can't listen to that music that has the illicit on the label, right? We want to protect them from all of that. And then we hand them a book that, if we were honest, should probably have an NC-17 rating, right? And go, hey, just go read that. You can go to your room, read it in quiet. Just, it'll be great. And they're like, oh. Renowned atheist and scientist Richard Dawkins actually says this about God in the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) This is the sermon of big words. I'm like, why did I quote Dawkins? This was ridiculous, right? Now, obviously, he's reading this, reading the Bible through a lens of antagonism, and I would even argue of shallowness. However, we do read stories of total destruction to our kindergartners, and we paint walls on our nursery, or paint pictures on our nurseries of Noah smiling with his arm around a giraffe. But on the other side of that picture is death and destruction. Or, thanks to VeggieTales, right? This is what we needed in our lives was vegetables who can talk to teach us Christian Bible stories. We have French peas who throw Slurpees at talking vegetables as they walk around Jericho waiting for the walls of the city to come down so the Israelites can invade and destroy everybody. And we're like, oh, it'll make a great kid story. 
I think there's some stuff that we can say is like, okay, this is a little bit, little bit hard to swallow. I mean, there are verses in the Old Testament. Joshua chapter 6, verse 21, which is as the Israelites are getting ready to walk into Jericho, they completely destroyed everything in it with their swords, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, goats and donkeys. Why do we have to kill the goats and donkeys? Isaiah 5.25, that is why the Lord's anger burns against his people and why he has raised his fist to crush them. The mountains tremble. The corpses of his people litter the streets like garbage. But even then, the Lord's anger is not satisfied. His fist is still poised to strike. These make us uncomfortable. Deuteronomy 7.2, when the Lord your God hands these nations over to you and you conquer them, you must completely destroy them, make no treaties with them, and show them no mercy. And maybe the most uncomfortable of all, Psalm 137.9, happy is the one who takes your babies and smashes them against the rocks. It got quiet. If I'm honest, this is just a small sampling of what we could pull from the Old Testament. One biblical scholar, I'm not quite sure how he did the math, but did the math and figured out that God is essentially responsible for 2,821,364 deaths in the Old Testament compared to Satan, who's responsible for 10, all in the book of Job. I want to say if those verses make you feel unnecessarily uncomfortable this morning, that's not our goal. My goal is to help us understand what do we do with this? How do we come to terms with this violence that seems so out of place and so unnecessary in so many ways? I think we have three options. First, we can just believe that God is God and he can do whatever he wants. And if that's you today, if you're here and you're like, hey, God is God, let him do what he wants. I'm not going to question God. I just want to have childlike faith. That's okay. Props to you. Sometimes I wish I could do that. My mind just continually turns these questions in my head and I'm like, Ugh. I think it's okay to be there if that's where you're at. And if you're like, can this question series just end and we get back to you telling me what the Bible says and how I'm supposed to live and it'll be great. Next week, come back. Two, we can assume that there are two different gods. That the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament have nothing to do with each other. And stop reading the Old Testament. You can do that. I will warn you, if you do that, you are now not reading two-thirds of God's love letter to you. And you are disagree, disagreeing with what scripture teaches about what, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now I might say, you don't need to have near as many devotions uh, on God executing all of the people groups as the Israelites walk into the promised land as you do in the book of John. That's totally fine. We should probably read John more than we read Judges. Just say. But, or three, we can dig in. And so the sermon doesn't end at like eight minutes. Uh, we're going to dig in this morning. And I want you to know as we dig in, 
no matter where you are in this, it is 100% okay for us to ask God why. For us to even be angry when we ask God why. Angry about the violence we read. God can handle your frustration. If no one's ever told you this, God is bigger than your emotions. He's bigger than my emotions. And he actually invites this. We can come with our frustration, with our anger, with our emotions, and be like, God, I don't get it. And it doesn't seem right. I do want to caution you as you do that, though. I think when we do that, we have to make sure we're leaning in to hear the answer back. When we come and we're like, God, I don't, I don't get this. I'm frustrated about this. Are we digging into the scriptures? Are we digging into our relationship with God? Are we trusting other people around us? Or are we just getting angry, asking the question and pushing God away? Or walking away from him? Full transparency. It's actually why we did this series. We want to model what it looks like to ask hard questions and lean in as a church. To wrestle with things we may not answer today. But at least to give us some context of how we do that and how we process that. So today, this question, why is God so angry? I want to give us some Bible study 101 tips from author Dan Kimball when he says, never read a verse on its own, right? Every verse of the Bible has context. There are 66 books written over 1,500 years that tell one complete story of God's work from the beginning all through creation. I believe this entire book, all 66 books that form it, are God's love letter to us. And in that, they present one unified God. It can be hard to see sometimes, but with a little investment of time as we dig in, it's there. So we don't have time to look at every controversial book verse in the Old Testament, but I want to walk you through a couple questions, give you a couple examples, and hopefully this creates context that enables us to go and study on our own. First, does God command genocide in the Old Testament? Does God command the Israelites to wipe out entire people groups? Now, there's a lot of texts surrounding this where it seems like God's command is to wipe people off the face of the earth, to utterly destroy them. And when you look at this, most of these texts happen in a certain historical period of time. So if you know the Old Testament, or if you don't, I'm going to give it to you super fast. Israelite, God calls Israel to be his people. They end up slaves in Egypt. Moses leads them out of Egypt. They disobey God. They wander in the desert for 40 years, and then they walk in to their land, and they inhabit it and dwell there, right? That's the, that's the plot line, pretty much, of the entire Old Testament. These stories happen as they are walking into the promised land. And I want to give you some context. We're going to dig in deep a little bit in some Bible stuff here. So just bear with me because we are essentially going to look at God commanding Israel to walk into the promised land and destroy 31 city-states as they take over this land that he's promised to give them. He gives this command first in Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 3. 
When the Lord your God brings you into the land you're about to enter and occupy, he will clear away many nations ahead of you. More big words. The Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. These seven nations are greater and more numerous than you. When the Lord your God hands these nations over to you and you conquer them, you must completely destroy them, make no treaties with them, and show no mercy. You must not intermarry with them. Do not let your daughters and sons marry their sons and daughters. Okay, so that's God's command as they walk into the promised land. How could God command that? I'm going to take you back to when he establishes the nation of Israel, right? So we're going from Deuteronomy to Genesis. Genesis chapter 12. If you don't know this, God selects the Israelites to be his people by calling a guy named Abram. He changes his name to Abraham. And he says in Genesis 12, 2 and 3, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. All right. God chooses Abraham to, be a bl- to bless. And he commands him, I'm going to bless you, not so you get fat and happy, but so you can be a blessing to everybody else. Right? Everybody with me? Nod your head. Still awake. Okay, we got that part. Okay. Then it's a promise. The promise God gives him is that he's going to have kids and a, and a people that are going to come from him, and he's going to have land. I'm going to give you this people and I'm going to give you land to live in. And the land is for him, but the land is also a promise that God is going to dwell in that land with the Israelites. He's going to tabernacle with them. That's the word, the Hebrew word. And so that's when they build this tent temple that travels with them as they walk through this area, right? And then they eventually build the temple. God's presence is with them in that land. And also in that promise came a protection came a promise of protection for anybody who would come against the Israelites and try to take them out, right? So that's the promise. Fast forward, Israel is in Egypt. They've been enslaved there for 400 years. Now, God actually knew this was going to happen. Genesis 15, 13, I'm not going to read it for you today. You can go back and look at it. And God tells Abraham, after my people have been enslaved for 400 years, then, and four generations pass, then this will happen, right? Before Israel's enslaved, we miss this a lot, God moves Abraham from where he's currently living to the land of Canaan. That's the promised land. So Abraham goes and lives in the promised land, and if you know the story, there's a drought there. Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. They go to get grain. They move down there. They end up enslaved there, right? So that's how they get to Egypt. If you're like, okay, how'd they get to Egypt? That's how they get there. That's what's happening. But in that, in Genesis 15, 16, God says something that we often miss, I think. He says this. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. They, being the Israelites, will return to Canaan. Here, that's where Abraham is. For the wrongdoing of the Amorites is not yet complete. Wait, what? Why does the Amorites matter? Okay, so there are lots of tribes that live in this land of Canaan. The big term to to cover all those tribes are the Canaanites. Everybody still with me? Not, yes, no, I lost you a long time ago, stop talking. All right, so here we go. So they're, they're there. I understand this is deep, but we got to go there if, you're gonna, if, if we're going to understand. God is showing his patience. Abraham has lived among the Canaanites. 
He has declared that there is a God who's different than the gods they worship. He has declared that this God wants to be in relationship with them. They, and then God says, I'm going to give you 400 years to repent, to turn away, to do the right thing, to follow me, to forsake your idol and follow me. Because I want Abraham to bless everybody. I want everybody to know I'm God and I can be their God and I love them. 400 years he gives them. They don't repent. Some of them do. Maybe most notably is the story of Rahab. If you know the story of the city of Jericho, Rahab lives in Jericho. She's a prostitute, but she repents and God spares her and she moves in with the Israelites and begins to follow God with them. There are people who repented. And that's God's heart. We're going to jump into a series next week on Jonah where an entire city, God is going to declare that he is going to destroy the whole city. And they repent, and God doesn't punish them. Scripture tells us God's desire is that we would repent and come to be in relationship with him. From Old Testament to New Testament, listen to the prophet Ezekiel. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so that they can live. Turn, turn from your wickedness, O people of Israel. Why should you die? Let's jump to the New Testament. Just so you know, it's equal parts. 2 Peter 3, 3, 9. The Lord isn't really slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. God wants repentance. That's his desire, not destruction. Even in the Old Testament, as the Israelites are taking over this land, that's what he wants. But then he tells them to destroy all these people groups. What could these people groups have done that's so bad that God would say we need to destroy them? Let me read a small snippet from a book called How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Kimball. Fantastic book, answers a lot of big questions if you're looking for something. He says, the Canaanites were involved in some evil worship practices. They had several gods among them, one named Molech. I'm going to warn you, this is graphic, so just hold on. Here's how the worship of this god was described. Molech was a Canaanite underworld deity represented as an upright bull-headed idol with a human body in whose belly was a fire that was stoked and whose arms a child was placed to be burnt to death. This comes from a Greek writer named Plutarch. He's reporting about this Canaanite sacrifice. The whole area before the statue was filled with loud noise of flutes and drums so that the cries and wailing should not reach the ears of the people. The people of this land had the horrific practice of sacrificing infants by placing them in the hot metal arms of a statue of their God and hiding with their drums the screams and cries of children being burned to death. It's extremely difficult for us to picture the barbaric horror of this practice, but this was part of Canaanite life. These were the gods they were worshiping. And if that's not enough, they worshiped Ashtaroth and Baal as well, who required that they bring their kids to the priests where it could be used in temple prostitution. 
If we saw this today, we would cry out, God, where are you? Show up and deliver justice. And so after 400 years of an opportunity to repent, God shows up with the Israelite army on their doorstep, ready to end this idol worship, ready to end these horrible practices, ready to say, I'm going to remove the name of your idol from this place and install my name and show you what worship is and show you what a loving God can do for you. Lastly, I want to just say, as a side note quickly, utterly destroy was actually common war rhetoric at the time. Go back to that first passage we read in Deuteronomy 7. Because at the end of that passage, there's this sentence. Deuteronomy 7.3. You must not intermarry with them. Do not let their daughters and sons marry your sons and daughters. Wait, what? I thought we were utterly destroying them. No, they're not actually going to all be wiped out. And God all the way through, you can look in the book of Joshua and Judges, it says utterly destroy, and then, but they didn't utterly destroy. Wipe them all out, but this people group moved in with the Israelites. There's always a remnant. It's not utter destruction. It never was intended to be. You don't marry dead people. I'm just saying. So God, even in his command to the Israelites, gives grace and mercy. Real quick, we're running out of time. Oh my gosh, we're way out of time. Does the, does the God of the Old Testament hate babies, right? It seems like babies are dying, right? Why are babies dying? Why are we killing children? This is weird. This is one of the hardest texts of scripture to walk through. But I want to I give you context to do it because the type of scripture we're, lead, we're reading matters. So the verse I read from Psalm uh, 137 verse 9, happy is the one who takes your babies and smashes them against the rocks, right? Understanding that changes the meaning of this. So this is in the book of Psalms. If you're not familiar with the book of Psalms, it's a collection of prayers and songs that the Israelites would write. I love the book of Psalms because it is so emotionally honest, it makes us really uncomfortable, right? Because we, pr we pray nice sanitized prayers. Jesus, thank you for this food. Thank you for all these nice people who are here today. And we just talk really sweetly to God. The Israelites didn't do that. They were ticked. And they let God know. And the type of psalm we're reading in 137 is called an imprecatory psalm. And that's when the Israelites are actually demanding that God show up and give them justice for what they're going through. And so they're like, hey, we need you to show up and do something about this. And the this in this context is they're living as slaves in Babylon. And there are historical documents that show us that the Babylonians were taking the Israelite infants and killing them on the rocks of the river. And so this is a cry of a hurt mom, of a heart-wrenched and gut-wrenched dad who's angry about what's happening unjustly to their kids, crying out to the God who they believed could answer them for vengeance. There's no actual history that says God answered in that way or that those things happened, but we've been there, right? You've been in that place where you're like, I'm ticked at that person, and God, you know, if they were crossing the street and a truck came, I'm not saying they didn't deserve it, but maybe, I'm, right? We, we've prayed those angry prayers or we've had those angry thoughts. They're just written there. It's our human nature 
God doesn't have to respond to this psalm. He's not locked to our commands and desires. Okay, Jason, what are we supposed to do about all this? Right? What do we, what do I, what's my takeaway from this? God's angry, but there's ex- explanation for it. That feels maybe not great. I think there's three things, and I'm going to go through them real fast. Love, not anger, describes God's character. God's character, there's never a place in Scripture where it says God is anger. But we're told over and over again that God is love. God is grace. God is compassion. Joel 2.13, return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, filled with unfailing love. He's eager to relent and not punish. Isaiah 54, 7 through 8, God's talking to his own people, the Israelites. For a brief moment, I abandoned you, but with great compassion, I'll take you back. In a burst of anger, I turned my face away for a little while, but with everlasting love, I'll have compassion on you, says the Lord. But you, O Lord, are a God of compassion and mercy, slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness, Psalm 86, 15. And if we jump to the New Testament, Romans 2, 4 through 5 says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because of your stubborn, because you're stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you're storing up terrible punishment for yourself for a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's desire is love, compassion, forgiveness. It's who he is at his core. But don't miss that. That's a New Testament reference in Romans. And God's saying there's judgment coming. So this dichotomy that we create, that the Old Testament's all about wrath and judgment, and the New Testament's all about love and grace, is a false dichotomy in a lot of ways. Tim Keller. You have to quote Tim Keller in church today. If you don't know, great mind, passed away on Friday. He says this. People say, I believe in a God of love, not a God who gets angry. If you have a God who never gets angry, you can't have a God of love. Because if you never, ever get angry about anything, you don't love anything. If you love and you see the thing you love threaten, you get angry. It is and has always been God's desire that we repent and accept his love and grace. But there are consequences if we don't. And there are consequences if we don't always fight for justice. See, the Old Testament is filled with examples, especially of the prophets, who are warning God's people about the way they're treating those around them. God wrote how the Israelites, remember, the command was, I'm going to bless you so you bless other people. God comes and threatens the Israelites when they forget or they mistreat people who are made in his own image. Remember that, church. In 2023, as followers of Jesus, everyone around us, agree, disagree, is made in the image of God. And God says, I created them. I want you to love them. And so as we follow Jesus and share the gospel, part of that has to be an understanding that we're called to stand up against injustice when we see it. And if we don't, God will. Point three, the Bible's an honest book. 
I don't know about you. This gives me comfort. God didn't clean it up. He wasn't like, hey, hey, don't put that part in there. He left it all there for us to read, for us to wrestle with, for us to question. If you don't take anything else away from the sermon today, take this. The entire Bible is one story about one God who is love. That's the narrative. As we study, explore, and seek to better understand the Old Testament, I believe you'll find a God who loves all people, is doing all he can to invite them into a relationship with him, and who will always stand up to defend those who can't defend themselves. Biblical scholar Thomas Christensen said this. You see, Genesis chapter 3 through Malachi chapter 4 is an essential part of the story of redemption. And love that that should make us want to orient our lives around the God who loves. I hope as you study and as you dig in, you're still going to have questions. I understand these are quick answers to a major question. But how is our reading and our understanding of Scripture causing us to want to orient our lives around who God, around this God who loves us? As we wrap up this morning and we close this series, I want to again just say thank you for your questions. The series has not been easy. Every week we're like, oh yay, what do we get to study this week and get prepared for and be uncomfortable in? But it's been good for me. And I hope it's been good for you. Most of all, I want to encourage you, keep asking questions. It's a vital part of a growing relationship with Jesus. Ask them as you study by yourself. Ask them in your life groups and study them with each other. Ask them of the staff and of us. It's our honor to be invited into your faith journey as fellow followers of Jesus who are just learning and growing ourselves. So let's keep asking questions. Will you pray with me? God, there are parts of your word that make us all a little uncomfortable. God, there are parts that we just don't fully understand. And God, we ask that you would speak into our lives, that through your Holy Spirit, you would teach us and shape us God, we pray for endurance to dig in and study. We pray for wisdom when others ask us questions that we don't know the answer to. We pray that we'd be able to find those answers or be able to find resources. God, most of all, we're thankful for your love, for your unending compassion for us in the midst of all this. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he came to end the Old Testament cycle and bring a different plan. And God, may we lead with love as we interact with everyone this week. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, again. Remember? Uh, Well, A, thank you for joining us and participating in this You Asked For It series, and I Mm -hmm. just wanted to say, remember, the questions that you sent 
You asked for it. So, you guys ready to, to answer some? We got some questions. This oh, week. I can't yeah, wait. We did. I can't wait. Um, okay, so what do you say to people who use the God from the Old Testament as a reason they are atheist and question why am I a Christian? Hmm. Yeah, it. I was going to say, I was told the person who preaches starts, so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I knew that'd come back to bite me. Um, I, I do think as much as you have a relationship with him, part of what I wanted to walk you through today is an answer to that question. I don't, I don't think it's just anger in the Old Testament. Um, I think we have, to, we have to help them understand what they're not seeing and direct them to the God who is love, who is slow to anger, who is compassionate. Um, and I would, I would push them that way. Yeah, and I think you said this, I think, a little bit in your message, right? It's also pointing to the, the fact that the Bible is one story from, from beginning to end, right? And so you've got to draw them into that entire story, that God's hope and heart is to build a relationship with, with people. And the, the Old Testament is just the prelude to that, the rest of that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think um, kind of adding on to that, when, when talking about people... There's a lot of knowledge and everything, and you can go round and round and round and argue and debate and all that stuff. Really, it's about a relationship. And so if we can try to get them beyond just this head knowledge and actually get them into the relationship with the loving Father, I think that's going to be a lot more effective yeah. than trying. Now, granted, there's, there are books and there are people that that's the way they are, so like, I don't want to minimize that, but I think prioritizing the relationship and the relational side mm-hmm. is a good way to go. Mm-hmm. I, real quick, I don't want to promise easy answers either, though. Like, at some point, you still have to take a step of faith. Mm-hmm. This is faith. So there's, there's not going to be an answer to every question. Um, at some point, there's, there's faith. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Agreed. If God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, why does he guide Christians so differently through the different testaments? I heard it. Mm. <laughs> Say that again. If God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, why does he guide Christians so differently through the different testaments? As a testimony, sorry, testaments. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, there, there's lots in that question. I think one thing to really remember, right, there's the old covenant and the new covenant, and so that's mm-hmm. a huge difference. So there was a covenant that was made in the Old Testament about if you do these things, there will be blessings, and if you do not do these things, there will be curses. Um, And so that's part of the Old Testament. We are under the new covenant, which is that I will no longer remember your sin as far as the east is from the west. And so that new covenant that Jesus ushered in at the uh, upper room where my body was broken for you, my blood was spilled for you, that ushered in a new testament, a new covenant that was made. So that's a huge, I think, a huge part of that. Um, and just remembering that, that doesn't answer that whole question, but I think that's a major aspect to that. And just as a, it, it seems a little bit like, oh, are you just wordsmithing? They're not Christians in the Old and New Testament. It's the Jewish faith in the Old Testament. It's the Israelite people who God has called, God has selected, and God has said, this is the way you're going to live in relationship to me. And I think through the entire Old Testament, what he essentially proves is we as human beings can't live in that relationship. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I, I, under, I wrestle with the idea that God is bringing us to the end of ourselves. Yeah. 
so that we become dependent on the one who could do it for us, who is Jesus. And that institutes, like Kevin said, the new covenant that institutes a new name, Christians, followers of Christ, and then ushers in a different way to live. But that doesn't end the judgment either. There's still, if we don't accept Jesus, we don't believe who he is, there is still judgment. It's just a delayed judgment, which I think also fits with what we see throughout the Old Testament. Um, I think there was a follow-up question kind of similar to that was like if there's, a, if there's a new and an old covenant and God doesn't change, doesn't mean it is, changed, it is changing because there's an old and new covenant. And I would say that verse about God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it's his character that doesn't change. Mm. God is still a God of justice in the New Testament as he was in the Old Testament. God is still a God of love in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. His character doesn't change. Maybe the methods and the way that he interacts with his people changes a little bit because of Jesus. Jesus changes everything. God's judgment, God's wrath is actually poured out on the cross in Christ. And so that's where it's satisfied. Mm -hmm. uh, and then as we come to Jesus, all of that is, is forgiven for us. So I don't know if you would disagree with that, but... No, that's, yeah, yeah. that's great. That's great. And it's so much to say. <laughs> yeah. It's also not like God's like, oops, I made a mistake in the Old Testament. Yeah. He knew in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve ate the garden, yeah. ate the fruit... Jesus started walking to the cross. Mm -hmm. We don't see that, but that's God's plan all the way along. Can I add something about sure. that? Sure, we'll just like, keep adding back and forth. One of, one of the things I love about like seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, for this isn't where the message went, but like one of my favorite Bible stories in the Old Testament is when Abraham has to go and sacrifice his son, or is going to about to sacrifice his son, um, uh, Isaac. Thank you. And, and another difficult a, text we avoided, but go ahead, yeah, Paul. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. But, and then God provides a way at the end, at the last moment. That story is all about Jesus. It's, it's pointing forward to someone who's going to come and save as God sacrifices his own son. And so we see his loving yep. kindness and his patience all through the Old Testament as it points to Jesus. Bam. Bam. Welcome to Conversations in the Office, Monday through Thursday, if you're curious. This is what it looks like in our offices as we go back and forth with your questions. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, I'm looking at time, and we are out of time. I am, we just want to say I'm grateful for these guys and their answers and their ability to articulate the way that they do. And um, I'm going to hand it to Jason so you can close us out for the day, all right? Yeah. Uh, well, thank you all for being with us. Thanks for walking through this series with us. I do hope it's been fun. If you have other questions, some people have asked, what are you going to do with the questions you didn't get to, the ones after the sermon or before? We're still not sure yet. We're trying to figure that out. Like, what does that look like? And so know that there'll be something. We'll communicate it very clearly when that comes and let you know how you can join in on that process. But for now, thanks for being here. Have a great day. God bless, and we can't wait to see you next week.